1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and to stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yes, He has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Poseidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Thanks 
very much. Well, just to remind people that uh, while we go through this section um, on Wednesday evenings in our gospel communities, um, we pick up on the same study, we uh, apply it a little bit more. It's an opportunity to go through in further discussion and questions that you may have um, as we seek to apply it to our lives and to us as a church. So come along on Wednesday evenings and be involved in that. And of course, if you have other questions at the end, please feel free to talk with me afterwards. Well, keep your Bibles open there at Acts 14. Um, it's a wonderful, um, adventurous story. Um, we're going to hear what God has to say to us from this. Let's pray, first of all. Father, thank you for your servants of years ago, people like Paul and Barnabas, who went from place to place to bring the good news. Thank you that the good news came to countries like Ireland. Thank you that people came to us, whether from home or friends or through some other means. We pray that the good news of Christ would impact us afresh this morning and that you would help us together individually and as a church family together see the different ways in which we have been called to be ongoing servants of that same gospel. Empower us, fill us, with your spirit as we hear you today. Amen. Well, do you remember the Mission Impossible films? Have you seen them? It begins with Mission Commander Swanbeck speaking to Agent Ethan Hunt via a recorded message. Here's how it starts. Good morning, Mr. Hunt. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, involves the recovery of a stolen item named Chimera. You may select any two team members, but it is essential that you have a third member of your team, and that is Naya Nordoff Hall. You have 48 hours to recruit Miss Hall, and meet me in Seville to receive your assignment. As always... Should any member of your team be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Do you remember it? Exciting, isn't it? Well, Acts has a similar theme. The book is a recorded message outlining the mission of God. And our mission commander is the risen Lord Jesus who gives us, the church, his assignments. So if we were to turn Acts into a feature-length film and to see it on the Hollywood screens, it might go something like this. Good morning, Christian. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, involves speaking the good news of Jesus Christ to all peoples in all nations. Your team members are the church family. But it is essential that you also have with you the Holy Spirit. He will empower you, enable and equip you to complete your mission 
As always, it is possible that your team or team members will be caught or killed. Should this happen, your captain will ensure the mission is completed. This message will be repeated till all have heard. Now, while Acts introduces us to God's mission, it also introduces us to God's mission strategy. God has chosen his church, the people that belong to him, to be the means. They're at the very heart of his strategy in bringing the good news of Jesus to all nations. And the way that that happens is very simply this. Churches are to plant churches. And that's what we have here in chapter 14. When the gospel is preached from city to city and place to place, look what happens. Look at verse 23 of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Reaching out with the gospel leads to churches being established. You see, God's missionary strategy is this, that churches would reach out with the good news and establish new churches, who in turn reach out with the good news and establish new churches. That's the cycle and that's the pattern. And crucially, the team members, the people who have been called to do it, are people like you and me, the church family. There is no such thing as an individual Christian who goes on about their own business. It is a gathering, a people together. The question is, are we going to accept this mission from our commander, the risen Lord Jesus? Well, before we see what is involved in church planting, let me just mention a few things here. What are we doing in terms of church planting? Well, we've got Kinsale, haven't we? So there's people here who are involved in the Kinsale project, the, the aim to see a church established in that town. So it applies to those who are specifically involved. Well, you maybe think, well, I'm not involved in that. Well, this church here. In some ways, this is an ongoing church plant. We're not fully established in terms of we're actually still reliant on outside support, financial support, for us to be able to function the way that we do. So in some ways, we are still in a church planting state. But then, of course, there are other places and other ways in which we can be involved. There are other churches around the globe that need our support and need our help. Maybe it means one of you, or me, or somebody, being sent by this church to be involved in church planting. So it's extremely relevant to us all. And what we want to look at here this morning are four things that we need in place to see churches planting churches. The first one is this. There must be a faithful communication of the gospel. Look at verse 1. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first four verses and just see how each of those verses are expanded and, and worked out through the rest of chapter 14. So verse 
one we'll get to in a minute. Wherever God's people went, there was a clear and consistent focus, verse 1. At Iconium, so they're in Turkey, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and there they spoke so effectively. They were speaking the good news that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. And in case we forget what our risen commander has called us to do, we are reminded again and again, verse 7, they went to other places where they continued to preach the good news. In verse 24, after going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. So, that is the focus. Now, the problem is not knowing that this is what we should do. I think we're all clear about that. The difficulty is, is what do I say? How do I actually communicate this message? Well, look at how Paul communicates the gospel. Paul has just healed a man who has been lame from birth, and we're going to come back to him in, in, in a little while. But look at the response of the people to Paul after this healing. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down from it to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. He was the kind of the, the, the main god amongst all the gods. So Barnabas was called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, they brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. What a response! Nobody has ever done that for me. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? To be thinking they were gods. Now we mightn't find many followers of Zeus and Hermes today walking around Carrigaline or Cork. But we have lots of people, in fact all of us, have our own gods that we worship and follow. We all sacrifice to these gods. We all give our life to someone or to something in the hope that it's going to bring us joy and happiness and peace to our lives. So we give our lives to things like our job. To, to leisure in the hope that it's somehow going to satisfy us. We give our lives to our partners, to our spouse. We, we give our lives to our children in the hope that they are the ones who are going to fulfil us. We sacrifice daily at the altar of family and work and sport, longing to be filled. Tim Keller is helpful here in his book, Counterfeit Gods. This is how he explains it. He says each one of us has our own temple or shrine. Whether it's office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. But the problem is, these gods will always fail us. They always leave us empty, longing for something more. So look at how Paul responds. Verse 14, When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, so somebody had obviously translated it to them, they tore their clothes and they rushed out to the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? 
We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn away from these worthless things, these empty, unfulfilling gods, and to turn to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. You see, the reality is we are never going to find our true meaning and our purpose in or in anything else but the living God. Trying to find our joy in someone else or something else is either going to disappoint you or it's going to destroy you. We are only truly satisfied when we repent and turn to God. Verse 16, in the past, he let all nations go their own way, going their own particular path, but yet he has not left himself without testimony. Each day God is telling us that he is here. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. God is so gracious giving us one good gift after another. And if he does this to us, even when we turn away from him, how much more will he fill our hearts with joy when we turn to his Son, Jesus Christ? This is a message of good news. This is what fills the hole in every single human heart. Christ alone meets our deepest need. He satisfies our greatest longing. This is the message that we can begin to communicate to people around us. So first, in our church planting ministry, we need a faithful communication of the gospel to the people around us. Second, we need to prepare for consistent opposition. This gospel may be good news, but you know what? Not everybody will like it. Look at verse 1, the end of verse 1. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And it wasn't just clever arguments or verbal abuse. Verse 5. There was a plot afoot amongst the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and they fled. However, just because you move to another place or another location or from one office to another office, it doesn't mean to say the opposition is going to stop. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Sometimes we look at this book and think, oh, it was so easy. They just preached and people became followers of Jesus. Now these guys, he was stoned, thinking he was dead. This is how hard it was. Throughout the history of the church, God's people have always faced opposition to the gospel. In fact, today, in this decade, more people are imprisoned and killed for telling the gospel than at any other time in history put together. 
The issue for us is not will I face opposition, but when I face opposition. In other words, we have got to be prepared for it, even in a so-called Christian country as Ireland. Look at verse 21. They had preached the good news in that city. This was in Derby. And they had won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. They'd already been there. Then they went back to them. Why did they do that? Well, verse 22. To be strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Why? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom, they said. Let's be honest with ourselves. We don't do hardship and suffering very well. In fact, as soon as something gets difficult, we want to quit, don't we? We want out. But if we know in advance that things are going to be tough, if we're told they're going to be tough, we can actually prepare ourselves for that eventuality. We can be ready and equipped as God's people. And the way to prepare for opposition is not to get away, look at verse 22, to strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. Now that's the responsibility of each and every one of us here. That's why we've had students up here on the last couple of Sundays, because we need to strengthen them. We need to encourage them as they go into a hostile environment of university life, where it is hard. We need to get alongside them. We need to be praying for them. We need to speak the gospel into each other's lives, whether you're going into work, whether you're at home, wherever you are. Alex preached a great sermon on that very subject. You can listen to it again online from from 1 Thessalonians. All about asking each other, how is your faith? Encourage. Spend time one-to-one reading, praying. Just do it. Make it natural. I spoke with somebody this week and they said, it should be so natural for us just to open the Bible and read, not to have to explain why we're doing it, not to have to explain why we're praying, but just to do it. To encourage each other in the faith. Okay, we mightn't live in an area where we're going to be imprisoned or killed, but we do live in an increasingly secular place where the Christian faith is just not tolerated. And if you are to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, whether you're in school or anywhere else, if somebody knows that you're a Christian, they're going to think you're mad, bad, or sad. And it's going to be tough. So let's strengthen each other in the faith. Speak the gospel. Pray for each other. So, may there be a faithful communication of the gospel. And let there be a preparation for consistent opposition. Third, we need a clear purpose of signs and wonders in our church planting endeavours. The gospel may be opposed by people, 
But God has confirmed the truth of his gospel in amazing ways. We can believe it. It's true. Look at what it says in in verse 2 and 3. We'll read verse 2 again. The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Now when we read a section like that, we usually get two reactions. And I'm going to judge you'll get these two reactions here within this group. One person will say, oh, but these things are finished. The miraculous is finished. We don't need them anymore. We've got the Bible. Somebody else might say, Oh, this is exciting, great. When can we kind of move on from the gospel stuff and get down to the real work of the church and see some miracles happen? Well, maybe it's no surprise, but I actually think both of those responses are wrong. Let's see what the text says. First, signs and wonders are not the gospel. We must never think that the miraculous is a suitable replacement for the gospel. It's not that some churches are into, well, you know the church over there? They're into telling people about Jesus. They're great at doing the preaching side. But over here, this church, they're great at doing the miracle side. No, the emphasis is clearly on the necessity to speak the gospel. Look at the beginning of verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Wherever they went, this is what they did. This was their focus, their aim, their priority. You see, signs and wonders, the miraculous, do not save people. They don't transform people's inner hearts. In fact, we're told in Matthew 24, verse 24, that the miraculous can even be imitated by Satan. He can't imitate the gospel. The gospel's unique, but he can imitate signs and wonders. So we must never get confused. Only the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is going to save people. That's why we are sent to preach the good news. We are not sent to do signs and wonders. However, second, signs and wonders confirm the gospel. While the miraculous can't save people, they do have their place. Again, look at verse 3. They spent their time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Let me quote John Piper here. I think he's he's very helpful. If you don't know who he is, he's a a pastor um, in the States. He said, signs and wonders are God's witnesses to his word. They are not in competition with the word. They are not against the word. They are not over the word. They are divine witnesses to the value and truth and necessity and centrality of the word. In other words, we say they authenticate the gospel. They are signs like massive big signposts, not pointing to themselves, but pointing to the gospel of grace, pointing to the Lord Jesus to say, this message is true. 
You can believe it and you can trust it. So they're not the gospel, but they confirm the gospel. And third, signs and wonders actually assist the gospel. By this I mean they can help people come to faith in Christ. And that seems to be the purpose of the miraculous all the way through the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll discover that there are 17 times where something miraculous happens and immediately what happens after is it helps or leads or assists somebody to become a follower of Jesus. Look at the way the two of them are, are, are with each other. We've got a great example of this here. So look at verse 8. Here we have in Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that the man jumped up and began to walk. Miraculous. Amazing. But please note, this healing is not done in isolation. It's accompanied by the gospel. So when we get to verse 15, after all this crying out, thinking, oh, these are actually gods who've come down, what does he say in verse 15? Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. And the result of preaching this gospel? Well, we know some opposed. So miracles in themselves actually don't save anybody. But some actually also believed, and we see that in verse 23. Because Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, including this place where this miracles had happened. And they, uh, where am I? And with prayer and fast had committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. They had become followers of Jesus. You see, God can, if he pleases, use signs and wonders to break cynical attitudes to the gospel, destroy false understandings of the gospel, melt people's hearts. They don't save, but they can assist in people believing. Well, that leaves us with one more, and probably the biggest question that you've all got. Signs and wonders today. Well, while miracles can and still do happen, it is not something that we can make happen. Look at verse 3 again. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. The Lord is the emphasis here. Who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them? to do miraculous signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are acts of God which he enables people to do as he pleases to confirm his gospel and to see his word spread to all nations. In other words, we don't get to decide when and how that happens any more than we don't decide who becomes a Christian and who doesn't. Acts says an awful lot about signs and wonders and the miraculous, but they are never seen as necessary 
or essential to gospel proclamation. However, that does not mean we should not pray for God to work his miracles. I believe we should. In fact, I believe scripture teaches that we can pray for these things and that we can seek these things. But our prayers for such things should be for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their purpose, should God enable, is to confirm the gospel and assist the gospel so that people come to faith in Christ. Now this is a whole big area that confuses a lot of people and gets a lot of churches mixed up. But here we need a very clear purpose of signs and wonders in their relation to the gospel. Fourth then, we need a trusting dependence on God's work. Verse 4, this is after the preaching of the gospel as we have seen. And then in verse 4, the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. And I take it that some were opposed, but also some believed. The same happened in other places. Look at uh, verse 21. Or sorry, the end of verse 20. The next day Paul and Barnabas left for Derby. Verse 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Now how did that happen? How did so many people become followers of Jesus? Well, look at verse 26. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had, been, uh, they had now completed. Now, just as an aside here, I want you to notice that they're returning back to their local church in Antioch. This is the place where it all started from. And now they're going back to their local church. So church planting is not a DIY effort you all decide to do in your own. It's done in conjunction with the support and the sending out of the local church. So when they go back there, what do they say? Verse 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together. So everybody, perhaps in a meeting just like this, they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's how people became followers of Jesus. The Gentiles were a Bibleless, churchless, Christless bunch of people. They were pagans who were worshipping Zeus and Hermes. But yet they were completely transformed. They came to faith in Christ. A church was formed in their own town and they began to teach the Bible to each other as they encouraged each other in the faith in all of the opposition. Not because of Paul's power or because of Barnabas's power. No, it was all because of God's supernatural work. Look at verse 27, the end again. Because it was God who had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You know what? I can't convince anybody to be a Christian. You can't convince anybody to be a Christian. Your friends people within your family who you long to turn to Christ. You cannot make them a Christian. 
That's God's work. He alone has the key to open people's hearts. He is the one who locks that bolted, tightened door that enables people to believe and to put their trust in Jesus. He opens the door of faith. And as a church, we exercise our dependence upon this supreme, powerful and awesome God who can cause people to believe. We express our dependence on him by simply telling people the gospel and praying and praying and praying that God will open their hearts so that they trust him. So here is God's strategy for mission. A mission that we have been called on individually. A mission that we have been called on together as a church. Our risen commander, the Lord Jesus, has given us our assignment until he should come again. Go and preach the gospel to all nations in the power of the Holy Spirit. See churches planted in each and every town and community. And the way that we can do that together is these four things. Faithfully communicating the gospel. Being prepared for consistent opposition. Having a clear purpose of signs and wonders. And a trusting dependence on God's work. May that be the case for those who are in Kinsale. May that be the case for us as a church together and may this spur us on to send people who are even here today to new places and to plant new churches as God calls let's pray together Our Father God, we thank you for this big picture view of your amazing mission plan and your mission strategy that you would call people like us, this church here in Carrigaline, to be at the heart of your mission purposes for this world. I pray that you would fill us and empower us by your Holy Spirit causing us to be people who speak the good news wherever we are that you would raise up and call people out from this church that we may together send them to be church planters that we would get alongside them praying for them, supporting them and encouraging them And maybe now, just in the quietness, that we would all surrender our wills, our dreams and our ambitions. That we would surrender them to the mission of God and say to God these words, use me in whatever way you choose and give me a heart that is willing to obey you and to go wherever 
you would send me. Father, bless us as a church. Use us to the building up of your kingdom and to the fulfilling of your mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.